This is Mandy. This is Angela. And this is the Homestead Education Podcast, where we talk all things homesteading and we want to share our passion and experience for this lifestyle with you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Homestead Education Podcast. This is Angela. I am joined by Mandy, as usual. Hi, friend. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Hanging in there, doing pretty good. Good. So um, we actually came up with the idea for this episode based on what we talked about in the last episode. We touched on it. We said we should do an episode on it. And so here we are. Today, we're going to talk about deworming. Um, sort of what is deworming? Why should homesteaders be doing it or not be doing it? And why both Mandy and I don't follow a routine deworming maintenance plan. Rather, we practice um, environmental efforts to reduce egg counts rather than relying solely on dewormers. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. I'm going to talk about it from a permaculture perspective and what I do and what I don't do. And Mandy's going to talk about it from a medical perspective because remember, she has that veterinary background. So, hi. Hi. Talk to us about larvae and parasites and eggs and worms. Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, I think as a whole, we, I mean, and you can take out the homesteading piece um, if you really want to. Like if somebody is listening to this and they don't have goats or horses or sheep or whatever. I mean, this this kind of is applicable to any animals. I mean, most people have a dog or maybe know somebody who has a dog, right? So um, when you think about deworming, if you've ever been to a vet, vet, (laughs) which if you have animals, I hope you have, um, they talk to you about it. Um, It is not absent from any animal's life cycle, right? Um, So, I mean, the terminology you just said is literally just like the... um, it's kind of like how we're an embryo and then we are born humans and then we're in, you know, a newborn and then we're an infant and then we're a toddler. It's kind of just like the life cycle of any type of intestinal parasite, really. Um, and just their, their little life stages. And you mentioned at the beginning, um, you know, your kind of permaculture, more, you know, perspective on this. And then the medical perspective, the medical perspective is backwards, in my opinion, and we should be looking at it differently. I mean, if you pay attention to, you know, if you if you have, you know, goats, cattle, horses, sheep, whatever, and you kind of pay attention to, um, any type of medical journal, journal, blog, anything that you're kind of like seeing that's actually truth, truthful, good information on social channels. A lot of people talk about the fact that we overuse dewormers and it's a, it's, it's a, people talk about deworming all the time because I think that it's a very confusing thing for so many people. And like a lot of things, we overcomplicate it. Um, we have like, interjected ourselves way too much over years. Um, and there's so much information that it's so hard to simplify it down to 
you know, a science, if you will, or just an understanding of um, what is what is the best thing to do. And I think that also the hard part for us as humans to wrap our head around is there's not a one it, like what I do might not work for you. And it's not because we, it's not because our practices are necessarily different. It's because our animals are different genetically, you know, and just it, it we live in different um, climates. So there are a lot of things that will play into this. Overall, it's kind of like the same. Um, and we'll have notes for you all in, in show notes. And Angela's done a really good job of kind of breaking it down. So what you are going to read and what we're going to, you know, you know, talk about. And then obviously you going forward and doing your own research, it is applicable to everybody, but then you also need to fine tune it right to you. Yeah. It's like anything else, like planting a seed. You have the basic instructions for planting a seed, but you're going to do it at a different time. You're going to mend your soil differently. It's that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, You know, it's funny when we, uh, when I adopted Finnegan uh, seven, eight, eight years ago now, he was a rescue, an Amish rescue, and they told me, you know, coming in from the auction, he has scratches and he has worms. And I was like, okay, good to know. I'll get the things that I need and I'll be ready. And being a new horse owner at the time, just having gotten my other horse, Dozer, you know, several months prior, I signed up for the maintenance deworming plan. I did the the one that you're supposed to do in the mm-hmm. spring. And then I did the other one that you're supposed to do in the fall. And I lined it up with right around shots time. It was a routine. What was really interesting and what kind of got me off the the routine deworming schedule is that Finnegan, being as old as he was and coming from the environment that he did, he could not shed his worms. And by that, I mean, he could not kick them. We could not get rid of them. We could not get them to an acceptable level. And so uh, sometimes when he would pass manure, it would look like spaghetti. And here I am going through all of the dewormers. And finally, what kind of kicked it for a very, very short period of time was using the five-day Panicure Power Pack, Mm -hmm. which is like a super knockout dewormer. But then they would come back. And so then I would use the Panicure again. And it was kind of for me like, what am I going to use when this doesn't work anymore? And I should not constantly have to be reusing the same thing over and over again. This is a short-term solution. This is not a long-term solution. So I started turning to environmental factors. And that's really when I got serious about rotational grazing, Mm -hmm. learning about how that affects egg counts, knowing that he was a shedder. And then also employing other species to help break up that life cycle. And, and we'll talk about that here, but for me, that was my firsthand brush with it. The first time, the second time was when I did bring in sheep about a year ago, I had a vet come out and run fecal counts on my sheep. And she was asking me, do you regular deworm them? And I said, no, I do rotational grazing with, with different species. And she, she kind of copped an attitude. She didn't believe me that it was going to work. And I said, run it run their fecal count and their formatcha was fine. Um, the fecal counts were incredibly low and she was surprised and she's like, okay, you're, yeah, you got this. It's, it's fine. It works. Yeah. It's science. It, it, it works. It, it really does. And I, if like we stopped talking right now and if, and it's not always possible, right. For people to rotationally graze. I mean, depending on where people are, sometimes you don't, 
you know, you have enough land for, you know, like for your animals, right. But you may, um, you know, well, gosh, climate change. Um, you know, there are climate change (laughs) and stocking density, like don't oversaturate your land. Yeah. They're going to play into it. But if you don't take anything else away and if, I mean, really, honestly, I mean, if you could change or, I don't know, alter one thing about the way that you practice, it really is, is, is paying attention to the environment. Um, it, it really is. I mean, like, it's a huge factor into, into parasite prevention and control. Environment um, meaning what Mandy's talking about is the fact that when you have animals that eat off the ground, yeah. they also shit, right? Yeah. You're going to run into a contamination issue yeah. unless it's properly managed. That's what the environment is. We're trying to man- manage where our animals are grazing and how long they're there for so we can reduce exposure to parasites. Yeah. Um. I mean, honestly, and it, I mean, we've talked about it in so many episodes and you'll, you see it everywhere. I mean, husbandry, I mean, this will fall directly in line with animal husbandry and it is not just like getting the animal and riding the horse or milking the goat. I mean, there are so many other things that actually really are going to play into it. So, um, you mentioned FAMANCHA. If people aren't familiar with what that is, it really is just like, I mean, there's a scale and you can look it up online and there are cards that you can like keep in your barn or something like that. But everybody, you know, has their phone with them pro and a con all the time. So you could just Google it and look it up. But, um, you're kind of like looking at their anemia level of the animal. Um, a lot of these intestinal parasites will feed on, um, well, I mean, they, they suck blood, I guess to completely reduce it down. So it will cause an animal to be anemic. And a lot of times they will have pale mucous membranes or pale under, like you pull their eye back. I'm doing it, but like, nobody can see me. You can see me. Look, I'm I'm not anemic (laughs) Um, at all. It should be red. It should be healthy pink. It should be healthy pink. Yeah. So that's what Angela means when she said that earlier. But, um, I mean, I don't think that, I don't know. I, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to read through, you know, verbatim everything that you have typed here, but I really, I, I am reading it right now and it's, it's very important for, I mean, these, these bullet points that you have here are are really helpful to people. I mean, my, oh, go Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just going to, I mean, my experience is largely goats and I mean, horses and, and things like that. But when, um, I think that when people are struggling or, w- uh, with parasite control or prevention, first of all, let me back up. When you say the word prevention, a lot of times people think, um, in veterinary medicine clients or just people, you know, this is my experience and, you know, the many years that I've done this and, and just talking with people, I think that people, when they hear the word prevention and they hear that the fact that you give a dewormer to your animal or, um, 
it, that it is supposed to prevent them from actually getting the worm. And that is so false. It does not, there's, there's nothing that we can do that prevents them from actually in, I mean, ingesting it. And I guess I, I say that with a little bit of a grain of salt because we're, we're talking about rotational grazing and all of that stuff. But if there are parasites in the environment, you are not going to be able to prevent the animal from getting it. We deworm them so that they have the capability of passing, of shedding them so that those parasites are not actually causing harm to their body so that they shed them in their feces most often um, when they ingest them. It just kind of goes right on through instead of setting up shop. So I think that's kind of important. It's a very, very common misnomer that people think that, hey, I'm giving them this dewormer. Why are they getting parasites? Well, that's why. Yeah, I think that is absolutely wonderful information. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily, it does kill some of the parasites. It does kill some of the larvae within the intestinal tract, but mostly it's about passing them, moving them through. Yeah. Yeah. So we've heard about some of the science of this and what dewormers do and what they don't do. So let me shift from talking about, you know, I use the example with Finnegan and the sheep. Let me talk about the rotational grazing that I do. So this is all not something that I came up with. I am not a founder of this. This is nature. This is how it works. Otherwise, all the deer would be dead. All of Mm -hmm. the wild animals we have would be dead, right? Because nobody's giving them dewormers. And so we have to look at what is happening with nature and and why does it work? I'm not saying they don't have worms. I'm saying they're not dying, you know, by the handful because of it. So when we look at nature, we kind of look at, okay, animals are moving and they're not grazing in the same space 24 seven. But when we have farms and homesteads, that's not really something we can't just let them go. We can't just let our animals roam. So we do have these confined confined spaces. So then what do we do in order to mimic the pattern in nature? Keep them moving, keep them on fresh grass. No matter how large or small your homestead is, ideally you would divide your grazing spaces or your pastures up into sections. And this is how we start rotational grazing. So even if it's like like a postage stamp size area, I'm talking like a quarter acre to an eighth of an acre. The idea is you're giving them one area to graze, whether it be horse, cattle, sheep, or goats. And you're saying, okay, this is the area that I want you to work on. And when that forage is depleted, and we'll talk about what depleted means because you're not grazing it down to the soil, um, then you move them on to the next path. Otherwise, what ends up happening is if you give livestock just sort of an open invitation to graze wherever they want to in a pasture space, They start to select areas that they're going to deposit manure, and then they have their favorite areas to graze in. And so they keep going back and forth and creating this area where they're not trampling forage evenly and not returning um, biomass to the soil. They are overgrazing certain areas and completely avoiding others because that's their bathroom that they've created. And so we, we run out of forage more quickly, and we open up our animals to more parasites. Whereas If we are moving the animals through guided areas consistently, not only are we reducing exposure to parasites where they've already fed and dropped manure, but what we're doing is we're giving them fresh forage. And as they move through these different areas, all of those paddocks before are resting or having another animal go through. It's getting sunlight. It's getting time to regenerate and regrow. 
It's having another species go in there and they ingest parasites while they eat. And so they're going to start breaking up the life cycle because quite frankly, most of the parasites that want to affect your horse or your cow are not the same parasites that are going to be detrimental to the health of your sheep or your goats. So you put them in there, they're going to start ingesting some of those rather than the same horse over and over and over and over again. So we're breaking it. But then when you let land have time to rest, you have better quality forage because it's had time to grow. Those parasites cannot find their desired host. They die off. But also you're allowing dung beetles to go in and break down that manure. You're really just, you're facilitating a healthy grazing environment and not by giving them new pasture spaces, literally. You're taking the same pasture that you have and you're just breaking it up. And so animals ideally would have enough forage in a paddock or a grazing space for about five to seven days. People get hung up on days and timelines. It's not about days. If you grow crops or if you've grown a garden, then you know that in some seasons, your plants grow faster and in other seasons, they slow down. And it has to do with light, temperature, water intake, et cetera. So instead of focusing on days, look at a pasture space and focus on forage height. So I allow my animals to enter when my grassy forages, like my ryegrass or whatever, triticale, reaches eight to 10 inches high. For things like alfalfa, clover, any vet or legumes you might have your animals on, those need to be 10 to 12 inches high. That is when the field should be open. I pull my animals at about six inches personally. You never, ever, ever want to move animals after forage is either eaten to the ground or when it falls below four. Four inches is the bare minimum. Why? Because scientifically proven that plants cannot grow back quickly. They actually take one to two weeks longer to regrow because you've gotten too close to the root system. When an animal grazes too close to the root system, now the plant has to put its energy into sort of reestablishing root structure and, you know, very fundamental plant tissue before mm-hmm. it can just regrow those leaves. I feel like I've been talking forever. Do you want to take over? <laughs> no, this is good. This is, no, no, this is so okay. good. Okay. So that's why we don't go below four inches. Like I said, if you could pull earlier, especially if you're having other animals come through, like myself for the sheep, they'll come through after the horses, you know, I need, I need to leave some forage for them. But also the really great thing about this system is that depending on what forage you have in your paddocks or your pasture spaces, mm-hmm. your animals are going to eat different forage types. And so things that the horses might not like, the sheep might love. Or yeah. if a horse might not like a plant that's growing in your space with like a more woody stem, the goats are going to go right after that, right? Oh, yeah. So now it's like we basically have a really great lawnmower that's coming through and evenly chopping down everything. Um, So if you can break your pasture down so that you have enough to sustain animals for three to four weeks, that would be your bare minimum before you would want them to go back to the first pasture they started in. So if we can move them through pastures one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and they're each there for four days, that's 28 days, right? That gives that first initial plot so much time to regrow before any animal is reintroduced, which not only means that forage has time to recover, but those parasite eggs hatched, the larva couldn't find a host, and they died. 
Yep. Because life cycle, I mean, typically, I mean, it's going to vary in length depending on your intestinal parasite, but most of them are going to have around a 16 to 21 day, which is why all of this like makes perfect sense, right? So, I mean, if you extend it past that three week mark, um, you know, and Angela and I actually talked about this when we had an issue really for the first time, um, (laughs) ever here, um, but you know, heat and things like that are going to play into it too. So, but I mean, we're talking like high heat. So, I mean, that doesn't really help a lot of people for an extended period of time, but it's really that time, that length in time, um, that your intestinal parasites are going to go through their life cycle. And they're going to, once they are mature, if you will, in the environment, if they don't have a host, like Angela said, they're going to die off. And so then you can reintroduce your animals back to a pasture that is, um, I'm not going to say not contaminated, but less contaminated. I mean, because when you, when you think about all of this, um, you know, and like, maybe you ask yourself, how do animals get intestinal parasites? Like, where do they come from? I think that, that, that is, I think that literally somebody asked me that not very long. Like, where do they come from? I mean, they have to come from, and in some, they don't just like come, right? It's not, they don't just like fly into your pasture or, or whatever. I mean, it, it comes from a contaminated source. So somebody, so bringing in a new animal, if you had somebody come onto your property and they potentially brought them, or if you took an animal somewhere and then came back home or, you know, they're, it, they, they come from somewhere. Right. But, um, your animals are picking these parasites up in an immature form right from a contaminated pasture or a contaminated source so a contaminated stall or whatever but most often they're out grazing and this is where they're going to get them and they're picking those they are becoming infected by ingesting the immature form of the intestinal parasite not typically the mature form or the adult form if that makes sense it does make sense so everything that you said I mean, it it all meshes together, right? Like the 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 length of time. So if people are like less medically inclined to want to deworm or or things like that, that's great. That's fine. Um, I have been working in the veterinary field for years and years, and I am right there with you. We we over deworm our animals, um, or we like we over medicate our animals. Period. Um, and you know, that could be a whole separate episode. It's, it's, it, it kind of is bringing us to where we are right now in a state that, um, we have, we have animals now that for generations prior to the ones that we, you know, we as a whole house or raise, um, now are having so, they have to work so hard to fight off these parasites because they're essentially immune to the medications that we're giving and or not necessarily the animal but the the parasites are not being killed in enough in a high enough um number to reduce the fecal egg count to help your animal thrive because they the the parasites have been hit with the same class of drug so many times that they're like nah it's evolution. This bother me. Um, it's basic evolution. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So it really does all. I mean, 
because and there's not one I'm not knocking any any one person but you know there are a lot there are some people that are very like by the book medically they want to do it this way right and then there are some people that are like no you know a little bit more natural nature that's great and fine in this in this particular topic they go together <laughs> i mean they, and i would even stretch this is my personal opinion but i would even stretch that if you are more medically inclined just in general with the way that you run your practice try to maybe chew on the fact or chew on the information of getting a little bit away from that medicine and trying to implement these other things because they do work very closely together but sadly i think that we're in a state of animal husbandry and rearing that you cannot do one without the other i think of it almost like antibiotics for people. Yeah. You know, we I try to humanize things a lot because I think um, people that are maybe new to homesteading and don't have a lot of exposure to animal care, obviously they are people as well. And so they have experiences of their own. And so I try to anthropomorphize things in a way that makes things more approachable. And I think we don't walk around, whether you are for, you know, against antibiotics, but nobody walks around taking preventative antibiotics. Right. Nobody takes preventative antibiotics for spring and the fall. And I know bacterial infections are different from worms. I'm just using this as sort of a crude example. The reason that doctors don't just readily prescribe antibiotics to a person who is sick and they actually want to run a lab test is because they don't want to offer you antibiotics on something you don't need because it's going to end up stimulating that bacteria into becoming um um, I just lost my word into becoming resistant. And so it's the exact same concept. Totally. I mean, right? it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's in this example of deworming our animals, it's what parasite are we dealing with? What, you know, if we're talking about deworming and medically right now, what are we dealing with? What is going to be susceptible to that specific parasite versus just like throwing a dart in the dark. Is that a saying? Yeah. Okay. Um, and being like, try this broad spectrum. You know, there are broad spectrums, I guess. I should, And a lot of them are. They'll hit m multiple species of intestinal parasite. But you know you have a specific problem because um, you're doing those fecal egg counts. You should deworm with something that is actually going to take care of the problem versus just guessing. Because that's that's what got it. That that's why we are where we are, honestly. Um, yeah, and I don't know. I don't know when. I guess I should. I should. I don't know when it became a, more of like a mainstream thing for goats to be like in the forefront of having such parasite resistance. I don't know if it's because goats became more popular. They've always been. I think relatively popular. I mean, if you date back centuries, I mean, you know, whatever, but they also weren't deworming back then. Um, so I don't know when it became more of a thing, but you know, if you, if you talk to any like equine vet veterinarian, a lot of times, and you've mentioned it earlier, you've used the word at least a lot of times in large 
herds of horses or, you know, very big like show barns or things like that, they will go in and they will deworm a heavy shedder versus just deworming everybody. Um, because honestly, I mean, it's kind of like with us, like if you look at our guts, if you look at us, like we do have healthy bacteria, like nobody is void of that, right? Like nobody is void of it on your skin. It's it's not like we're just like sterile walking around, right? It's the same for our animals. Um, but it's, we've come to a place where they don't, they don't have the capability, um, of managing on, on their own because we have kind of like backed them into a corner. And again, these are all my personal opinions, but I mean, we've kind of put them in a place where they don't have the capability of managing without our, you know, sometimes extreme help when it comes to like these schedules of deworming. And I think that like, I know you have been asked because I have been asked so many times, like, what is your deworming schedule? And I mean, I think that people are kind of just like, when you're like, oh, well, we don't r- routinely deworm. And, you know, some people are like, eh, what? Like, it's very confusing. Um, because I almost say it's a little taboo. That's what we're told to do, right? Um, yeah. I don't know. But I think we are not saying do not ever deworm. If no. there is a problem, if totally. you have a sick animal, especially with a heavy parasite load, deworm we're not saying though just realize that it's not going to wipe the slate clean for you and your farm because the animal had to pick it up somewhere it's likely existent in your fields so if you don't change your field or pasture practices it's going to return and i think then if you have good pasture practices proper rotational grazing especially co-species grazing yeah you are reducing your parasite load to a level that is manageable for the animal. And then also it's just also just giving you more forage and more quality forage. I mean, it's kind of a win-win. Mm-hmm. I think some things that we forget about as humans is the greater effect that dewormers might have on a greater ecosystem. So as Mandy said, when you administer a dewormer, you're helping the animal to push those parasites through. That dewormer doesn't die. It's still active in that manure heap. If that manure is dropped on the soil, that dewormer actually has an effect on additional life. And so the dewormer doesn't know the difference between a strong aisle and an earthworm. It's just going to kill worms. So some of the things that dewormers um, affect negatively when overused or not used appropriately would be um, killing off protozoa, killing off earthworms in your soil types. Um, They're also really harmful to dung beetle populations, which Mm -hmm. are incredibly important to the natural process of decaying or breaking down manure. But also like we touched on, it just builds up resistance in your animals. And so I think maybe just question, like Mandy was saying, what appropriate usage is. I think that's just where we need to need to stop. And I think that's, that's the good evaluation point is you don't need to get away from it altogether. You don't need to rely on it. It should be an integrated pest management program Mm -hmm. that the dewormer is only a small faction rather than the whole thing. I mean, you really used word like the integrated parasite prevention or pest management, however you want to look at it is very, um, highly sought after or very, um, 
heavily discussed right now in the veterinary field. Um, I will say that there are some actual, and this is more like on the cattle side, but it's, um, when you, I mean, a lot of times when you think about ranches and how cattle are raised, it's hard to, um, in such high numbers that people do routinely deworm because that's just kind of like it, 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 that's the easiest way. And that's the best way. Um, um, but there are, and pat on the back to, you know, medicine, if you will. Um, but there are some classes of drug or that are dung beetle safe. Um, and it, it, it actually is, um, so important. And it, because it is, it's all just like a huge ecosystem. They, you know, we impact the animal, the animal impacts us and everything in between. Um, now I lost my train of thought because I was really excited about sharing that, but that, I mean, (laughs) um, oh, I was going to just share because you, you had said, you know, we're not telling people not to do it. I mean, we don't routinely deworm here. And by routinely deworm, it's kind of like how you said, we don't do it in the spring and the fall, like just willy nilly. Um, our main animal is goats. Um, we kind of discussed in the last episode very briefly that um, we dealt with um, Monchus intestinal parasite very badly a few months ago and lost an animal because of it. And so we did deworm everybody then. Um, and not because we didn't have a choice, but like we kind of didn't have a choice. Now going forward, our and this is kind of just to give like an idea for people just in saying like, don't we're not telling you not to do it. Obviously do it if you need to, but going forward and what we've kind of worked out with our vet and this is what, you know, it's in line with moving, moving the goats and all type of, you know, husbandry, keeping their food off the the ground and picking up, you know, contaminated hay and goats are terrible about that. And, um, is doing a fecal egg count and kind of treating them how you would treat, like I had said, uh, like a large horse barn or horse herd is then treating the ones that are heavy shedders. And, you know, we're not going to get into, I I won't get into it like a whole, whole bunch, but there are actually people that do this for a living, like with goats or sheep or cattle. And like, if you have an animal or we'll just, we'll say one, you know, made whatever for, for this example, and they are a heavy shedder. You cannot get their parasites under control. They're constantly shedding no matter your best efforts. Some people will actually cull that animal because it is, it, it's what's best for the, the, the greater good when you think about. But in my very humble opinion, we've created that problem, right? And I've said that multiple times. Um, yeah, but. The medical side of this and the, you know, Angela side of more the, the permaculture side, they are so intertwined. Um, yeah, I mean, and I hope that it's kind of, I hope that people can kind of, kind of see that, um, 
because I mean, it's by evidence of literally like talking about the the life cycle and, and the days that it takes for an animal to mature, and then the recommendation of the rotational grazing. I mean, like I don't know what other I don't know what a what, what other information well, is necessary there. The conversation doesn't stem from a place of rebellion. We're no. not saying that medical industry is trying to make your animals sick. We're no. not trying to be um, completely holistic and off grid and deter you from using traditional medical medicinal therapies in exchange for herbs. We're not doing any of those things. If that's where you are is in one of those camps, fine. What we're just saying is Mandy and I get a lot of questions about why we aren't on routine deworming maintenance plans. And this is why, because we go beyond relying on the dewormer. It's not the, uh, the only effort we make towards reducing egg counts. It is a yeah. very, very, very small part. I would say it's the smallest part of it. I Yeah, I would agree. I would totally agree. It's a very common question. And I, I think that, or I hope that this kind of like sheds light a little bit. Um, it may, I mean, if it helps a couple of people kind of just, I, it, it seems extremely daunting and overwhelming. However, it's just not. Um, well, just like talk to your vet, you yeah, know, and run, run egg counts. Like when they're, yeah. your vet's, happy to take your money and run some labs. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> when I do my vaccinations, because contrary to what we're saying about dewormers, I do vaccinate. Yeah. We have a high population of things here that require vaccinations, in my opinion. And when we do those vaccinations, I request fecal counts. I want to know how we're doing parasite wise. And I think that's a good habit to get into. So if you're skeptical, run an egg count. Take them off the dewormer one season. Run an egg count. See how it's looking. Are there any environmental factors that you can change to maybe decrease that egg count? And I think that's just a really good place to start. Um, always, always interact with your animals. Know what the healthy animal looks like as opposed to the sick animal, the lethargic animal, the anemic animal. All of these things, despite um, good rotational grazing practices, can creep up like with Mandy. And they do need to be paid attention to. So, yeah. All that to say, we have some references in the show notes. I do I do get notes sometimes about where the show notes are. If you are listening on a podcast player such as Spotify or Apple Podcasts, when you click on the episode right, it shows you a description as to what the episode is about. Underneath the title, that's the show notes, is that description. So we have some references in there for you to take a look at. These aren't just... Uh, uh, humble bloggers opinions. I have a Penn state extension article study for you to look at. I have, um, a dewormer resistance article that's out there from Cornell. So just some more food for thought. Anything else yeah. to add? No, I mean, I think that, you know, um, no, I, I think that I hope that we help people because I, like we kind of said at the beginning of when we first started talking, just try not to oversimplify it, you all. Um, I mean, overcomplicate it. Definitely simplify it. Don't overcomplicate it. <laughs> because it is not as complex as you probably think. I mean, and you're not alone in thinking that, oh my gosh, I have no idea. There are 700 different choices and what do we do and when do we do it and when's the best time and how am I supposed to, you know, it's just... Um, Read, yeah, read the notes and kind of maybe listen to the episode more than once. And um, we're always here if you need help. 
Yeah, absolutely. If you are rotationally grazing or you learned something from this episode that you're going to implement on your farm, we would love to see. Tag us. You can tag one of our accounts on Instagram. You can tag the podcast account, which is just the name, you know, Homes Education Podcast. That's also on Instagram. We would love to see. We'll repost and reshare. We want this to be a conversation. Yes. All right. Thank you for your time today, Mandy. Thank you. And thank everybody. Um, We hope you have a really good uh, rest of the week. Okay. Hang in there. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Homestead Education Podcast. Any relevant material will be put in the show notes. We hope you'll share our episodes and also click that subscribe button. For more information about this podcast, you can visit us on Instagram at Homestead Education Podcast. Angela can be found online at axeandroothomestead.com and on Instagram at axeandroothomestead. Mandy can also be found online at thefarmermandy.com and on Instagram at Wild Oak Farms. We'll see you next time.